The last, uh, the last week and a half, last two weeks, uh, we have been looking at, uh, at Holy Week. We have been uh, looking at it through the lens of these words, and perhaps you, uh, you have one of these on your refrigerator at home. Uh, we started on Palm Sunday looking at the promise of God, and then at the home worship services, we considered our rebellion. Uh, on Good Friday, we looked at the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, and last week, new life. We're extending Uh, our Holy Week celebration one more Sunday because there's one more word. And this morning we want to consider the word hope because a life of discipleship, a life of following Jesus, of putting your faith in him, of me putting my faith and my trust in him is a life based on hope. Now, when I use that word, you may hope for a lot of different things. I thought of the things for which I hope this week. I hope the Blues win a Stanley Cup before I die. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I hope that gas prices will drop back down to $1.50 a gallon, but that might not be all that of a serious hope. I hope that Oscar Tavares has like two great weeks at AAA and then comes to St. Louis and wins Rookie of the Year at the same time Adam Wainwright wins the Cy Young and we go back to the World Series. I have lots of hopes. You probably have hopes too. You maybe have hopes for your kids or for your grandkids. Maybe you have hopes for your business. But hope is not always based on reality, is it? Sometimes we, we hope for things, and, it's, and it just, it's an unreasonable expectation. It's kind of pie in the sky. We wish it, it would come about, but chances are it probably isn't going to. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, and don't panic. You haven't, like, woken up from a, a deep sleep. You're like, wait, I thought we were done with Romans. We've been done with Romans for a while. If you're having, like, that I have an out-of-body experience performance. We're going back to Romans just for a visit this morning, but Paul in Romans speaks of hope. And the question that, that we want to look at as we look at the verses that uh, we will we'll, um, study from Paul this morning is, does he have good reason to hope, or is it an irresponsible hope that really has no merit or no foundation? Let's look at Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, or your touchpad, or your phone, or on the screen. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, rev- uh, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come together this morning uh, to worship you. Uh, Some of us come from weeks that were just filled with joy and excitement. Others of us come from weeks uh, that were difficult, were quite a struggle. Father, many in this room are experiencing good health right now. Others are are not. 
Others, some are experiencing great blessings in their business, others are not. Others, some students in this room have really good grades, and others are a little nervous that mom and dad might see the mid-semester uh, progress reports. Lord, that, that is life on this earth, that it is at times joyful, but often we experience firsthand the brokenness of this world. So Lord, as we, as we gather together this morning, we don't do that in a vacuum. We don't just shut our minds off when we walk into this room and say, well, I guess we better sing some songs and, and say nice things about God and then get back to reality. Father, we come here in search of reality. We come here to engage our minds in worship that we would learn from your word and your spirit. Father, every person in this room, whether we know it or not, whether we, whether we acknowledge it or not, we desperately need to be in a relationship with the gracious and merciful God of the universe. And we pray that as we look at this word this morning, that you would help us understand context, or help us understand hope in that context, the context of your grace and your mercy. Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn and to know this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you, if you didn't catch it when I read it right off the bat, we're going to go back and look at it pretty quickly. It, it it should startle you just a bit that Paul would make such a bold statement. And if we look at verse 18, Paul starts off this conversation about hope with, with, with saying something that, quite frankly, most people would probably never say in public. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, there's no way around this. Paul is saying very clearly and very succinctly, the struggles of this life are not worth comparing to the glory of heaven. Now, you can't go back to the Greek and find something that makes suffering mean less than it means. It means suffering. It means heartache. It means that, that dark night of your soul. It means when, when you are struggling the greatest, when life seems the most difficult, when, when you maybe want to kind of throw in the towel and give up. Paul says, you put all that together, the sum and substance of that, and then you look at where we're headed. You look at that for which we hope, and they, you can't even begin to compare the two. That is a radical statement that could be, to many, very offensive, and to others, simply naive. Is Paul just offering some wishful thinking? Is Paul out of touch with the reality of the common man? Is he sitting somewhere in an ivory tower, untouched by the pains of the world, and, and probably what our reaction ought to be is, Paul, you need to get a grip. You need to kind of think about what really happens in normal people's lives. Uh, however you voted in the last election, it's clear that Mitt Romney had a problem in engaging with the common man, in a sense, because he is worth over $250 million. Now, that's not evil. That's not wrong on his part, unless he got it in the wrong way, and I have no reason to suspect he did. But a lot of people are like, I just don't think I can relate to him. I don't, I don't have that kind of money. And rightly or wrongly, folks could say, well, Mitt, you know, you don't really understand our pain. Maybe that's where Paul, you know, Paul, you've been an apostle a little too long. You're not really thinking about the world the way you should. Is Paul simply offering some wishful thinking? Or maybe there's another side of this. Maybe Paul's just a great motivator. Maybe Paul is looking at the church in Rome and he realizes that they're going through struggles and he's like a coach at halftime. He just needs to come in and he just needs to, to rally the troops. He's not really all that concerned with the, with, the, with the factual data. 
He's not necessarily looking around the world and seeing what's really there. He's just saying, you know what, the, the troops are in trouble, and, and i gotta, I got to get us together. i got to motivate us. i got to take it upon myself to make sure that we, that we approach life with, uh, with the, with the uh, enthusiasm and excitement that we should. On January the 9th in 1969, this is a little trivia question here. January 9, 1969, does anybody know what bold statement was made on that day? There's got to be somebody that, that knows this. Any guesses? Super Bowl three, that's a clue. Oh, oh. People over under 25 are going, oh, what? What are you people talking about? Joe Namath, right? The AFL, three days before the Super Bowl, right? They're going to play the, 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 the vaunted Baltimore Colts. Even though Johnny Unitas was hurt, they were still an unbelievable football team. Every expert in the world picked the Colts to win. And Joe Namath, three days ahead of time, and reporters in the room later say he might have had a little too much to drink, but he said, we're going to win, I guarantee it. Maybe that's what Paul's doing here. Maybe Paul's just kind of throwing reasoning to the wind and say, I just need to rally the troops. Is that how we look at this statement? Or is Paul actually correct? And we should follow his lead. We should, we should have that type of faith in our life. That's the question this morning. It's a bold statement. As we go through this text, we're going to look at how Paul bases his hope. Where's the, where's the focus of Paul's hope? And that should tell us a little bit about whether he's just kind of trying to rally the troops or whether he's actually correct and how that uh, uh, impacts, excuse me, how that impacts our life. The first observation I want to give you along those lines is that Paul does not give us a hope that's based on ignoring the facts. Paul states the facts very clearly. I'm going to move through this pretty Quickly, but Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory of God. That word consideration there means that Paul has given a very, very thoughtful reflection. He sat down and he's wrestled with this. He's tested it out in his own mind. This is not a knee-jerk reaction. This is not, you know, I, gosh, I just saw something, I read something on the internet, now I'm going to hit reply and tell everybody what I think. He's actually sat down and prayerfully considered this. And then he's looked at the world around him. And he hasn't seen everything coming up roses, right? Verse 20, creation is subjected to futility. Verse 21, creation is in the bondage to corruption. A corruption there means decay. It's wearing out. You know, you, you, you buy a car, and the minute you drive it off the lot, it's worth less than it was a minute ago. And as our lives go on, our bodies... The whole world is in the state of corruption, of decay. In verse 21, creation is groaning for delivery. In verse 22, Paul is not ignoring the facts. Paul's saying, I see the world around me. I understand that there's, there's a beauty to creation, but there's also a deadliness to creation. There's a brokenness to creation. Uh, a, a theologian named Royce put it this way in the last century. Everywhere our eyes meet images of death and decay, the scourge of barrenness, the fury of the elements, the destructive instincts of beasts, the very laws which govern vegetation, everything gives nature a somber hue. Paul is not ignoring the facts. He looks at the world, he looks at the created order, he looks at the cosmos, and he says things, things are broken. 
And, and if you've ever spent any time in the wilderness or you've read of maybe somebody who was, you know, got lost when they were uh, out doing a hike on, you know, on, on a trail somewhere and they fell and there was nobody with them and, and they lost their lives or the story that was written recently about the guy that got trapped in the whole arm thing we won't go into. But, but you know, you got to be careful out there because nature isn't always kind. So on a backpacking trip once with a bunch of high school kids, and we decided on the last day of the trip that instead of going around the, the ridge that was to our right, that we were going to actually just do some map and compass work and go up and over to the other side and make our way back to the trailhead. Now, in, in Missouri, where you're probably no more than five miles away from a house, that's probably not a problem. In the middle of Colorado, on the Continental Divide, you can die trying something like that. And the whole time, the guy that was leading and I were showing off a sense of bravado, no problem, we've done lots of map and compass work. Inside, we're both going, I hope this works, because somebody could get hurt if we don't get this right. Nature can be cruel. Paul is not ignoring that, nor is he ignoring the struggle of the disciple. He says in verse 23, what? We groan inwardly, right alongside of creation. Disciples are not spared the struggles that are common to this world. If somebody told you that coming to Christ meant that everything would be easy for you, they sold you a false bill of goods. If people said to you, when you come to Christ, you won't have any more problems, your business will prosper, you'll, you'll be wealthy, everything will be easy, they simply were not basing that on Scripture. Paul would say that oftentimes the exact opposite is true. If you want to know about some of Paul's struggles, I'm not going to put them up on the screen this morning, go to 2 Corinthians 11. And look at the list of things that Paul says happened to him because he was following Christ. Paul understood that part of the journey was groaning, and there was, at times, good reasons to groan. His hope was not based on ignoring the facts, nor was his hope based on human strength. Look at verse 18. Paul says, the glory to be revealed to us. We're the passive recipients of someone else's glory. My hope is not built on whether I, Paul, can have enough faith to get myself home. My hope is based on the glory that someone else is bringing to the equation. Verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. His hope is in a relationship with God. His hope is, is in the fact that God will do what God promised to do in the first place. Verse 23, we wait eagerly, adoptions as sons, and, and sons there means the, 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 the uh, chosen child, the special one. So it, it isn't just boys, it's the one who is the child of the promise. We eagerly await that adoption as sons, and then he says the redemption of our bodies. In other words, Paul says we're in relationship with God right now, but it's not complete. There's coming a day where I will be with Jesus, and not only will my soul be renewed, but I'll have a new body. Now, my body's a pretty good one. I know some of y'all are jealous of my body, but well, I don't know why you're laughing. There's plenty of it, right? Some of us look at our bodies and go, this, you know, it could, it could stand a wee bit of improvement. When you get to heaven, that, it won't even cross your mind. It says even our physical bodies will be renewed by God's strength. I was thinking about this this morning, and I, and I was remembering a hymn called The Solid Rock. And I just want to read you a couple quick verses of it because it reflects this understanding of, of hope being built uh, on something other than human strength. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly or completely lean on Jesus' name. Third verse of the song. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul 
gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Paul would say amen to that hymn as the hymn says amen to what Paul has written inspired by the Holy Spirit that if your hope is in your strength to hold on to God, you've got it backwards. I was actually in, uh, in my place of business this week. I was in Spencer's and uh, I was in the back room and there happened to be a, a member of Green Tree there with a friend of his and they were doing some business but then uh, we had a few minutes and we began to talk just a little bit and he began to share that he was in a place of, of great spiritual dryness, that he just was struggling quite a bit. And before we left, I said, brother, just remember, if it's up to you to hold on to God, you got a problem, but it's not. Praise God that it's up to him to hold on to you. And even in your moments of dryness, even in your moments where you can't experience it or you can't feel it for whatever reason, God is holding on to you. So that's exactly right. Paul's hope is built on a strength other than his own. And Paul's hope third observation here is fixed on God's promises kept and his promises yet to come. In verse 19, he identifies us as sons of God. In verse 20, he calls us children of God. In verse 23, Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In verse 24, he says, in this hope, we were saved. All of this reminds us of the promises that God has kept through Christ Jesus. So whether you go back to the very beginning of Scripture and to the very first chapters of Genesis and see the very first promise of God's plan for redemption in chapter 3, verse 13, or whether it's up to the very last prophet of the Old Testament or in the Gospels where we see the, the physical presence of Jesus on earth, all of those promises that were made in all of those passages are being kept by God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul can look back into history. Paul can look back into his own experience, and Paul can see that God is faithful to his promises, which allows Paul to say, then we can look forward as well. If he kept those promises, I have good reason to believe that he'll keep these. Anybody that's in business with someone or anybody who relies on someone else to help them with a project or with a business venture or, or with your homework if you're a student. You, if you know that your buddy's got a D in math and it's the same as yours, you're probably not going to call him for tutoring, are you? <laughs> you're going to say, who in the class always gets an A? That's the person I want to call. The one time my son got in, our youngest son, Jordan, got in trouble in high school for cheating was because he let somebody else look at his paper. And I kind of liked that part of it, that he was the smart one. He's clearly related to his mother. But, but you don't go to somebody who can't help you. If you're going into a business deal, you, you, know, you say, hey, have you ever done this type of work before? If I need a plumber, I'm not calling an electrician. And so Paul looks back and he says, here's God's track record. It gives me great reason to believe that he will complete the job. And so he says in verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies, verse 25. We hope for what we do not see. In other words, we hope for the completion of what God has already begun. Maybe you've, you've studied in history Shackleton's uh, expedition from uh, 1914 to 1960, the Imperial Trans-Antarctica uh, uh, Expedition, in which ended in disaster, or it met with disaster. It actually ended gloriously because everybody ended up being rescued. But they were rescued because they, they got to Elephant Island and they could go no further and the, the, the crew simply 
couldn't get away from their imprisonment on this island, so Shackleton and one other man, might have been two, but there were no more than three, who then went from there to, for help. And when they left, everybody kind of looked at the maps and the charts, and here's where we're going to go, and here's how we're going to do it, and they thought he should be back in a month. He left around the 1st of April. He arrived back with the rescue team on August the 30th. <laughs> what did all those guys think about for all those other months waiting? Well, if you go back and you read some of their comments, they said the only reason we didn't lose hope was because we knew Shackleton's track record. <laughs> and we were pretty sure the promise he made he was going to be able to fulfill. Friends, Christianity is not turning your brain off. Christianity is not just blindly going, gosh, I hope this works out. Christianity is weighing the facts. Christianity is looking at what God has done and rightly concluding by his grace, he will get us home. Our hope is fixed on God's promises kept and his promises yet to come. What is the net result of this in your life and in my life? Paul says it creates a patience. Look at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, if we hope for these promises yet to come, we wait for it with patience. What does it mean for you and for me to live a life of, of hope with patience? Well, I want to talk about what it doesn't mean for a second because I think some people um, make this mistake. If you're in a place where you're in some amount of, of distress this morning, if life is a struggle for you, there may be some Christians that say, you just need to buck up. Don't you see these promises? You have no reason to be depressed. You have no reason to be sad because the glory is going to be that much better. And there's an insensitivity of the, in the Christian community almost to the sense where we say, you know, if you groan, actually, that's a sin. If you groan, it just shows that you have no faith. And yet Paul says, we all groan inwardly. Paul says, it, I can't even begin to compare them, but you know what? We all groan sometimes, don't we? And that in and of itself is not a sin. Disciples suffer without a complete understanding. We don't know how it's all going to end. One of the difficult things in my world, in my occupation, is when people come to me with struggles and with pain and with issues that, that, that happen sometimes seemingly out of the blue. I mean, we, we're all good enough to create our own problems. We're all good enough to bring trials our way because of our own sinfulness. But there are moments where we go, why did that happen? And all of a sudden, everybody's looking at the preacher. And you know what the preacher is thinking? God, please don't let him ask me this question because I don't know. I'm fallible too. I don't know why an untimely death occurs. I don't know why a, a business that seems to be going well fails. I don't, I don't know why a child who, who seems to be content and happy struggles with depression. I don't, I don't know the answers to all of those questions. So for us to groan, for us at times to sit down and weep, to just put our face in our hands and say we don't understand what's happening is not sin in and of itself. Actually, it reminds us that compassion and encouragement are the order of the day. If you have a friend or a spouse or a child or someone who's struggling, who, who's in the moment of groaning, our job is not to correct. Our job at that moment is not to say, now here's what you're not thinking about. Our job is to be gracious and kind. The same man who wrote these words was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Look at the occasion. It's in the context of knowing that God's going to get us home. But at moments of brokenness, it's okay to groan. And for the greater body of Christ, we're called to care for one another with compassion and with encouragement. But we also must remember that despair ignores the promise. If I reach the moment of hopelessness, 
I'm not talking about a moment where I've just received bad news. But if I end up living there, if I end up saying there is nothing else, I, I can't even believe in heaven, then we miss the promise. Those that have been kept and those yet to come. And patience acknowledges both. Patience acknowledges the promises of God, and patience acknowledges that it's going to be hard till we get home. So how do we live a life of hope? So I'll give you a couple thoughts this morning. First is this. I want to say my life needs to be built on hoping in God's promises lived out every day of my life. I need to remind myself that God is a God of hope. That God is a God who has kept his word and will keep his word. Because I am going to have hard times before I die. I am going to have struggles. You are too. We're going to have things that come out of the blue and hit us like a, a, a car in an intersection we didn't see. And at that moment, it would be a very good time to have steeped myself in the promises that God gives and the hope that is lived out every day in my life. At Green Tree, we talk about things like time and treasure and talent. And we talk about it in terms of, of giving to the Lord, of serving. So we give of our time, we give of our, of our treasure, we give of our finances, we give of our talent. Um, uh, Oliver will grow up in a church where uh, Sunday school teachers teach him the Bible. Uh, part of that happens because you and I give our money to Green Tree and we pay the rent for this building. And Lord willing, within a year or two, we'll be able to build a building. And so thank you for giving. Thank you for, for giving of your treasure because that helps the gospel go forward. We think about it in terms of giving our talent. How can I serve? Maybe I'm a teacher. Maybe I'm a counselor. Maybe I should be a Stephen minister and offer encouragement. But all of that is based not on guilt. That's what I'm supposed to do. Not on obligation. That's what they expect of me. It's based on the hope that what God has promised will come about. The reason we want that little guy right there to know about Jesus is not just because of today, but because of eternity. And a hope lived, is a life lived is a, a life that looks forward to what God has done in Christ and will do in Christ. We talk about the term like missional living. We care about our neighbors. We want to engage with our neighbors. We want to, we want to build friendships with the hope of when they come to those moments that seem hopeless, maybe they would know that we have something of a faith. We'd have an opportunity to talk with them. A life of hope cares about those who have none. And then I, I want to say a life of hope is based on Joe Namath's words and his actions. That's a great way to end a sermon, isn't it? On January the 9th, Joe Namath made a promise. On January the 10th, with a bit of a hangover, he was called into his coach's office and was read the riot act. And on the 12th of January, he went out and he won the Super Bowl. How much do you think Joe Namath was thinking about his words every time he stepped on that field? We say we're a people of hope. We say our hope is not in our own strength. And our hope is not based on ignoring the facts. Our hope is in the God who has kept his promises and will kept, keep his promises. And in about 20 minutes or so after the congregational meeting, you and I are going to, well, you're going to leave. I've got to stick around for the next group. I like them too. <laughs> Shouldn't have said it that way. We're going to use the recording from the second sermon and not the first. <laughs> you're going into a hopeless world. You're going to a world that medicates itself. Pursuit of money, pursuit of sex, pursuit of possessions. Doesn't look to eternity. And maybe this week, somebody you know is going to bump into you. A person of great hope. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that you call us to hope not because you want to deflect us from today's concerns and just not worry and blindly think that it might all work out. Lord Jesus, you give us great reason for hope. Ultimately, you give us the only reason for hope. You have overcome death and hell itself and have given us new life and a new life that lasts for all of eternity. But in the here and now, this morning, right now, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would uh, live as people of hope. And that might mean, Father, this morning, for someone who's in a very difficult set of circumstances, just saying, boy, thanks for, thanks for verse 18. <laughs> Lord, thank you that you remind me that, that what's coming is so much better than, than where I am today. I can't begin to imagine that, but I'm going to believe it. Father, help us if we know folks in that situation, to make sure we care for them well. We don't preach at them. We don't tell them, you know, to get their hope act together. (laughs) Maybe we just need to be hopeful for them right now. But Father, help us to be compassionate. Help us to be people of encouragement. And Lord, as we leave this place, help us to live as people of hope. By your power, for your glory, the growth of your kingdom, and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.